Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, folks. I am John Najarian for Compound Interests. I am the host of that show. And today I had the pleasure of speaking with J.R. Ron. He is the CEO of MindMed. Um, it is a psychedelics company. And I know when a lot of you hear that, you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, what a surprise. John's talking to a guy that's uh, in the, into psychedelics. Um, I'm speaking to him, folks, because uh, we all know mental illness is a huge problem around the world. And somewhere between 20 and 40 million Americans have either anxiety, addiction, or other that might make them a candidate for psychedelics. And this runs the gambit. These are not going to be something like a dispensary that you walk down to and you say, yeah, I think I'll microdose a little LSD right now. Uh, what MindMed is working on are therapies, therapies to treat anxiety, to treat ADHD, to treat Alzheimer's, um, to treat um, cluster headaches, and all manner of things, PTSD, folks. So um, open your mind up a little bit. Uh, because I think you want to see the first and thus far only publicly traded psychedelics company um, because of the potential for that space, because of those, like I say, 40 million Americans with anxiety and another 20 million that have addictions. And that's just in America. Think of all the other folks around the world. So we're not talking small, we're talking big. And yet this is in the growth stage for this company. I think you're really gonna enjoy the conversation with J.R. Ron of MindMed. First, if you don't mind, uh, maybe give people a little bit of a background about your journey from uh, Silicon Valley down right now, I guess, in Miami uh, and working with MindMed on the psychedelics. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not typically based in, in Miami. We're, we're usually based <laughs> on Zoom and I'm usually in Switzerland where a lot of our research is done, but Due to, due to COVID, I'm stuck here. And I don't know if that's a good thing right now, but uh, <laughs> it was a couple months ago when everybody was shivering up, up, up north. But um, sure. uh, yeah, so I, I started out in, in Silicon Valley. I was uh, an earlier employee at Uber. I then uh, left and, and went through something called the Y Combinator program, which is where companies like Airbnb and Dropbox came out of. Um, and I was looking around at all my friends and going, what is everybody going to do for work in 10 years time? Uh, we're basically automating everybody out of a job, uh, anyone from an accountant to uh, somebody that makes coffee. And that led me to believe, well, mental health and addiction are going to become very, very big problems because when people lose their purpose to wake up every morning, um, these, these, illnesses are, you know, become more prevalent uh, in societies. So that was really sort of the kickoff of how I transitioned from the tech space into the mental health space. Um, and I was back when I was at Y Combinator, I was reading this report, I think it was done by McKinsey, that said by 2030, 800 million people were going to lose their jobs due to AI and automation. Hmm. Okay, that's a lot of people. Oh. Um, you know, that's a global number, but if you just think about in the last, you know, three or four months based on COVID, 40 million plus Americans have lost their job. 
So the issues that I was thinking were going to be, you know, 10 years away in terms of having this great depression of mental health and addiction um, just got fast forwarded. And so what we are doing as a company and why I set up MindMed was to really focus on how can we find innovative ways to um, solve mental health and addiction. And I happened upon psychedelics um, and as, as part of that, uh, finding what, what we thought was a solution or what, what is a potential solution uh, for some very, very big problems in the United States and, and, and around the world. Well, and JR, I mean, from what I've been reading, um, it seems that ADHD and uh, other addictions and things like that, I know ADHD is, uh, uh, I'm pretty aware of it because I've got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think most smart and intelligent people have ADHD. It's a, it's a common, common trend, but. Oh, I, I wish that was the reason. I hope it is. <laughs> um, but my daughter has it. Um, uh, in fact, both my daughters do. My second daughter is adopted. So at least it didn't transfer from me to her. Mm. Um, but uh, it's just something that affects an awful lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, dealing with it, uh, there are a host of, uh, treatments for ADHD. Um, mm -hmm. And there are treatments, some of which uh, can be, can lead to addictions as well. Mm -hmm. Now, luckily, I haven't had to be on medication, although my wife frequently thinks that I should be. <laughs> um, but uh, I've, I've managed to deal with it, like you say, uh, whether it's Stephen Jobs with uh, you know some of the ways that that he operated, or some of the ways that I operate, perhaps you as well. I mean, do you have a direct relationship with anything like ADHD or anything in this uh, realm? Yeah, definitely. I actually, you know, I struggled with mental health and addiction for a lot of my adult life, and I think it's a tough thing to say. I think a lot of Americans struggle to sort of admit that at times um, because there's a stigma in society that eh, you don't really want to talk about that in, in public. I think that's starting to change. Um, but yeah, when I was 13 years old, my parents brought me to a psychiatrist and I, they sent me home with a bottle of Ritalin. The bottle of Ritalin turned into a bottle of uh, Concerta, which turned into a bottle of Xanax. Um, and got to the point where, yeah, I mean, I was even abusing uh, these medicines that were legal, FDA approved, and, um, you know, much of, much of my generation was put on. I mean, I think they even call us Generation Adderall now um, because of the, uh, you know, sort of over-prescription of ADHD medicines, these stimulant-based medicines, which are not great things to put in your body. Um, so that was... In Silicon Valley, there's sort of been a trend amongst folks my age um, and a lot of the tech workers out there, some of the large tech companies, to microdose psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. So that's um, not actually taking a hallucinogenic uh, ex experience, but taking a small, finite amount um, to help them better focus at work uh, or achieve a certain flow state, um, you know, getting... Uh, just having a better sense of attention. Um, and so traditionally that's been done with microdosing of LSD. Um, and when I say those three letters, a lot of people look at me, you know, not only is the guy bald, he also has horns on his head. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, it, 
but but we're seeing great anecdotal evidence um, that microdosing LSD might have the potential to treat ADHD, particularly adult ADHD. And I think my generation wants to get off of these stimulant-based medicines um, that they've been on for so many years. Um, they come with all sorts of you know side effects, like you can't sleep. There's you know a whole bunch of other things that are not great about those medicines. Behind me, um, and I don't know if you can see it, but that is Albert Hoffman in a, in, a, a, in a light painting. And Albert Hoffman is the inventor of LSD. He actually discovered it in uh, Basel, Switzerland, which is the home of um, uh, Novartis, a very large pharmaceutical company. Um, and LSD was invented there. Um, really, it was developed as a medicine. It wasn't until sort of the 1960s um, that uh, we started seeing sort of a people rejecting um, the, the use of psychedelics and, and governments really uh, criminalizing them. So long story short, um, yes, we are working on treatments for, for ADHD and uh, we think it's a, a big component of, of, of the work that we're doing in the psychedelics arena. Well, um, and I applaud you for that. Um, I, I think uh, when places like Johns Hopkins University, um, I, I, I didn't tell you, JR, but my, my dad's a doctor. Oh. Um, so that's my nickname is Dr. J. I have no doctorate and didn't, didn't go to med school or anything. I just took it because it was an easy moniker down on the trading floor. Uh, when somebody was wondering, hey, who'd I make that trade with? Dr. J. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we did it. Um, but uh, so my dad uh, had actually uh, studied it as well. Um, mm -hmm. LSD and effects oh, of wow. LSD. He's a kidney transplant doctor, though. So that wasn't his uh, main focus whatsoever. But because of when he was coming out of med school, which would have been probably about 1955, um, yeah. like you say, that was more or less the time some of that stuff was in the more scientific realm before the Timothy Learys and everybody else kind of hijacked it um, into, the, uh, into pop culture and so forth, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and all that sort Still of Still a good song though. Still a good song, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, well, you know, how do you view the current mental health landscape, uh, you know, with COVID? Because we're both, at least at this time, folks, here we are the 8th of July, we're talking about trying to come out of this thing. And a lot of people have had mental health issues because of being cooped up. Some of that may be manifest itself, JR, with some of the ways the riots got violent because people had just been trapped in their homes for so long that certainly there was an outrage about what happened to George Floyd and others, mm -hmm. but there was also just a lot of anger about, I haven't seen any of my friends. I want to get out. I want to go do something. <laughs> and some of those folks are going to have not just anxiety disorder, but they're going to have uh, real issues, mental health issues. Sure. Do you think COVID is really going to be a trigger uh, for, you know, perhaps for some of that? Well, I think it already is. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, the, when it comes to mental health and addiction, though, it's you, you there. These are long term effects. These are not sort of short term illnesses or diseases. They, you know, they'll manifest themselves over the next 10 to 15 years. And so 
but let's just look at the short term, right? Mm -hmm. From February 15th to March 15th, 75% um, of Xanax prescriptions were new Xanax prescriptions, right? <laughs> so I, I, was, I was in the Walgreens around the corner from my house filling a prescription and a woman was asking the pharmacist and she was going, you know, my doctor told me I'm getting very anxious while watching the news. And, you know, so he gave me this Xanax. Tell me about this. What is it? And so, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. Xanax, if you've ever taken it, um, it's, it's a pretty intense medication. And it's actually found a lot of times in, in overdose deaths um, in, in opioid patients, Xanax and, and opioids are in, combined in about a third of those deaths. So oh. yeah, it's, it's not, um, not, not the solution to anxiety. And we have observed that. Um, there's 40 million Americans that have anxiety. Uh, this is, you know, a, a serious issue. And if you look at, um, you, you, were, you were talking about George Floyd. If you look at the African-American population, anxiety is at its highest level that it's been in, in recent history. It's at 41% of African-Americans have some form of anxiety at the moment. That was based off a study I think I saw in the Washington Post. So we got some big problems to solve. Uh, specifically around anxiety, and these are very large markets, right? These, uh, these are markets that haven't necessarily been addressed by the larger pharmaceutical companies of, of recent. There hasn't been much innovation in, in the mental health and addiction space. And so that's the opportunity that we see as a company. Um, we want to completely change the paradigm on how mental health is treated. And so the typical treatment is put a patient on a pill a day for the rest of their lives. And because that seems like a, an annuity and a great business. Sorry about that. No, he, he's, he or she is speaking up too. Yeah, these, are he's, big, he's. these are big problems. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so what we're doing is, is looking to uh, now start a phase two B trial with the FDA based on what we call experiential LSD. So mm -hmm. actually uh, having a hallucinogenic experience to get after some of the underlying causes of what is causing the anxiety. And um, that's a completely different way at looking at anxiety and mental health. And so we're basing this off of a, a phase two study that we're already doing in, in Switzerland and it, we purchased it, uh, the, the rights to it previously I'm from the University of Hospital Basel, back where um, that guy discovered LSD. So we sort of went 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 home and and um, and got a hold of a, a trial that's been going on since 2017. Um, and so we have a, an exclusive relationship with the University of Hospital Basel to uh, work on uh, psychedelic therapies. And so it's a completely new asset class, a completely new space. Um, but the problems that we're solving are, are huge. I mean, these are you know, 40 million Americans with anxiety, 20 plus million with depression, uh, sorry, uh, addiction, 17 million with depression. These are, you know, going to, these numbers will get bigger after COVID for sure. Right, absolutely. And think of those numbers too, folks, um, when you're talking about, you know, 20 million, th this is not like an orphan drug <laughs> treatment. Um, this is like mainstream. This is yeah. like, you know, uh, this, what, what JR is doing 
over with MindMed is going to be something that you're going to be hearing a lot about because people need this kind of treatment either uh, as a way to uh, take the anxiety levels down and or like you've already mentioned um, addictions, um, perhaps PTSD and some of these other things. I mean, is Project Lucy, is that the one that you're talking about overseas? Yeah, that's right. So, Pro so Project Lucy is our LSD program for anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. It is based off a of phase two trial um, that is happening overseas in, in Switzerland. Um, but we're going to be bringing that back to the United States and opening up a, a new drug trial with the FDA, a later stage. Um, we're applying to open that, that drug trial sometime soon. Um, and we want to make this an approved therapy in the United States. And so we want it accessible um, to, to those that are in need. Um, what, what's kind of interesting is, uh, and what, what Project Lucy really sort of is looking at as well, is the interconnectedness of mental health. Um, a lot of times, the people, you know, folks that have uh, anxiety also have depression. And, um, you know, for example, ADHD sufferers, 50% of them have anxiety, right? There's clear correlations. Why aren't, we, why, why aren't we looking at the interconnectedness of mental health? And so we think that psychedelic assisted therapies might offer the greatest hope to actually look at that interconnectedness um, and really change how we go about treating this. And um, I think change the relationship people have with seeking help. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough stigma to overcome, you know, the, the history of psychedelics, but I think we need to focus more on the outcomes. And if we do that, we're going to have a really big business. Um, you know, it's a, it's a whole new sector in the pharmaceutical market um, that's really largely untapped because the larger pharma companies have never really done the research because of the stigma associated with the, with the names on these substances. Um, the most recent thing that sort of has become uh, a, uh, an approved FDA medicine is S-ketamine, which is based on the psychedelic ketamine. So that's by Johnson & Johnson, or Jan they're, they're, uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is part of J&J. Um, Big Pharma, though, has this search and acquire model where they um, look at smaller companies like ours when we get later and later stage with our drug trials. A lot of times they, they make acquisitions. And so um, I think we're in a great position uh, as a company and the first publicly listed psychedelics company out there um, to form some great partnerships uh, going forward with, with larger pharmaceutical companies. Uh, uh, since JR mentioned it, folks, um, uh, I'll, I'll hit it up real quick, uh, his, the symbol, because uh, MindMed is publicly traded, um, is MMED or MMEDF. And uh, one of those is on the NEO exchange, I think. Yeah, and one, NEO, NEO in Canada and MMEDF is, uh, is down in the US. Yep, on the OTC. Yep. And 65 million-ish market cap, does that sound about right? Um, I, looked, I think I looked a couple days ago. Yeah, I think we're pushing a little higher, but it's, I, I, to be honest with you, as, as a CEO, you, you focus on the business and less on the share price, but I, I, I would say it's, it's around there, yeah. And uh, their, their go public with this one, folks, um, was uh, 
brought out with a friend of mine, um, Kevin O'Leary, obviously a friend of JR's as well now. Um, mm -hmm. And he has spoken about uh, MindMed glowingly. I mean, he is really a true believer mm -hmm. um, in what you guys are doing, JR. Uh, because yeah. as soon as he considered investing in it, he and I were talking and he said, John, you got to take a look at psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he wanted to go out to dinners. <laughs> but he was very serious and he thinks this is serious medicine. So even though I have a laugh there, I'm, I'm deadly serious about the things that JR is doing with this company, folks. Um, Tom Shoes, founder, uh, is in as one of the investors. Um, they've got a lot of folks that are very involved that have been involved in the cannabis space, um, as you might imagine, because uh, a lot of folks that recognize the medicinal qualities of marijuana uh, or cannabis um, are also looking at this and saying, wow, look at the size of this market. Um, one of the things maybe, JR, that you could hit on is uh, how do you plan to use MDMA, you know, uh, which is another, you know, just like LSD, you guys also have like the, the purer version of ecstasy, um, MDMA, um, out there and you guys are examining exactly how that could fit into this portfolio, right? Yeah, so we um, also acquired about nine clinical trials that had been looking at the human safety of MDMA. Um, actually, how does that work in one's body? You know, a lot of these substances um, are not super well understood. And so as a company, our mission is to, to make them understood. We are trying to prove that they're safe and effective medicines um, for, for mental health. So we acquired some data uh, and these clinical trials from the University of Hospital Basel overseas in Switzerland. Um, but what we're looking at is how can we combine MDMA with another psychedelic, maybe like LSD, to produce the best therapeutic experience um, for a patient. You know, so these medicines are not, you just, you know, take a pill home and that's it. You know, these are, you, you go in for a therapy session where someone sits you down and you take this, these, these substances and they really act as catalysts to um, explore what's actually going on inside um, your consciousness. And um, really dealing with things that, are troubling you and might be causing you to constantly drink, right? Or uh, you know, constantly having you worrying because um, you know, of a past tr trauma or event. And so, in order to do that, um, we are also doing a lot of R and D to figure out what is the best dosing technology that we can give to therapists and patients, um, because all this is going to happen in a medical and clinical setting. You're not going to go down to your local dispensary and pick up a bunch of uh, mushrooms or LSD or MDMA. That's mm -hmm. not, in, in our opinion, not happening. We, we, these are going to be, you know, FDA approved medicines if they can prove that they are effective. Um, and the science is pointing towards that. Uh, but you're going to most likely go into a clinic uh, or a hospital uh, in the direct supervision of a medical professional to, to use them. So um, very, I think, different than uh, you sort of alluded to so, so, some early cannabis backers. Bruce Linton um, is uh, the founder of Canopy Growth. He's also 
uh, a board member here, um, you know, this is different than cannabis. Um, cannabis really took, took off due to a recreational, I think, approach. I mean, there were some early medicinal companies and actually the medicinal companies have held up pretty, pretty well. I mean, if you look at GW and, and some of the other ones. Um, but what is interesting about it, potential FDA approvals is you have a defendable business model where um, you can protect IP uh, and the, you can sell these therapies um, through the existing medical infrastructure that is, is in, in America. Um, and that's a very, very big market. Um, so we're gonna solely focus on um, bringing all of these um, substances and medicines uh, and getting them approved as medicines uh, through the FDA. Now, um, you know, going back to your Y Combinator and uh, Silicon Valley experience, um, you can hardly speak to somebody in Silicon Valley. I grew up in the Bay Area, by the way, okay. JR. Got, it, got um, it. So I know a lot of folks in the Valley, obviously not as many as you, um, because I've been living in Chicago for the last 38 years. Um, but um, I hear a lot still about folks microdosing um, various drugs uh, in terms of how, how it helps their productivity out mm -hmm. there. I mean, I hear a lot about microdosing LSD and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and you guys, I know you're not talking about, just as you said accurately, at least your vision right now isn't that I'll walk into a uh, dispensary here in Chicago and um, pick up some microdose LSD and just go home and have fun. It'll be in a therapy, um, at least, again, your vision right now. Right. But you guys are doing a lot with the microdosing side of that business, right? Yeah, we are. We are looking at microdosing, um, maybe in a way to potentially complement some of uh, our hallucinogenic or experiential therapies that would happen in a clinic, but also can there be a take-home medicine? Is there a take-home medicine model here um, of why somebody could microdose? And so we are looking at both of those options. And I think we're one of the few companies in our space that takes an approach to both. Um, but we, we do see a huge potential for microdosing. We're actually doing the first phase two study ever of uh, microdosing of LSD for adult ADHD. That's happening um, in the Netherlands uh, and also in Switzerland. I will be kicking that study off by the end of the year. Um, that is uh, what we envision to be a take-home medicine. We're going to have to develop technologies that allow for it to be uh, taken home and so that it's not abused. Um, but we think we have a pretty good handle on how, how we can achieve that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, microdosing is very prevalent in Silicon Valley. You'd be surprised at um, some of the folks that are microdosing. There's some, you know, people that are in the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, and uh, it's um, you know, definitely something that um, is a growing trend uh, in, in America. Um. Let me run a couple others by you uh, because I, uh, even though I've been exploring MindMed and I, I think it looks like a, a, a fabulous endeavor you guys have got going. Um, it, mescaline, peyote, um, mushrooms. I mean, my, my wife, for instance, JR is a mushroom hunter. Um, she loves going out, uh, not, not to eat or not to ingest yeah. for a psychedelic, but uh, she just, you know, like some people are bird watchers. I don't know how, how it happened, but 
my wife is a mushroom hunter. They're beautiful. You know, my ex-wife was a mushroom hunter, so <laughs> I, I know I know the I know the type. It's um, it's uh, you know they there's a lot of different psychedelic substances. We've been talking a lot about LSD, um, uh, but there are you know psilocybin, which is which is magic mushrooms. There are uh, mescaline, yes, which is derived from the from peyote. Um, MDMA is also psychedelic. Uh, we're looking at the continuum of these substances. And um, right now we have uh, really like four programs that are, are seeking you know, commercial drug development. Um, uh, we, we have a program for uh, anxiety, which we talked about. Uh, we have a uh, program for uh, ADHD, which we talked about. Um, we have a program for addiction that is based on um, a, a substance that's based on ibogaine or ibiga. It comes from a, a root in, in West Africa, um, which has been shown to um, anecdotally treat uh, opioid addicts very well. Um, and we created a non-hallucinogenic form of, of ibogaine called 18MC. It's really kind of like a microdose form. It would be a, we, we envision it might be a take-home medicine. Um, and that's really trying to be the antibiotic of addiction, right? We don't want to put people on a pill a day for the rest of their lives. We actually want to solve underlying addiction. Um, and what's interesting about addiction is the mechanism of action looks like it's craving something called dopamine, which is that pleasure center of your brain. It's that when you take your first you know, swig of, of wine uh, right now in, in isolation, you sort of get that little bit of a buzz. That is a dopamine rush. And that is what keeps you coming back for more. Uh, and so what uh, this particular uh, medicine that we're working on is it helps regulate that dopamine. Um, and so uh, uh, this is a, you know, addiction and we're looking particularly at the opioid crisis. This, the opioid crisis costs the country $500 billion a year, right? Uh, opioid um, deaths are up in the midst of COVID-19. Right. This is this is a, this was a big crisis before COVID, and we think after it's going to be even worse because a lot of people are not getting the treatments um, that they need, uh, and there really hasn't been any innovation in that space for for a number of years. Methadone is just a little bit less harmful of a narcotic. It's not going to solve the opioid crisis, and you know I've had numerous friends um, you know have problems with with opioids. Um, I myself, um, you know. Uh, also, I've struggled with addiction for, for, for much of my adult life. And that's really what this company is about. It's about a, a mission. It's very mission driven. We want to solve these issues for um, everyday Americans. Well, you guys have uh, phase two trials going on um, for cluster headaches. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you could give us any update at all about that, I'm sure, sure. any of the folks that are trading your stock would love to hear um, so I guess you have to be somewhat careful, but yeah. do you have any public information you can tell us about how phase two is going with that? I do. Yeah. So the, the phase two trial kicked off um, and we've, we've begun treating patients with LSD. Um, cluster headaches are actually called suicide headaches. Um, and they are, from what I've gathered, from multiple patients um, in this space, they are one of the most painful uh, illnesses out there. 
uh, I had one, one person describe to me, it to me as more painful than childbirth. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, you know, it, does, it's not, it doesn't affect a lot of people, but it's, it, it, it affects enough. And people have been self-treating themselves with LSD and they've had to get it in, in illegal manners um, in order. It's the only thing that is really solving these, these cluster headaches. And there's actually a community um, online that you know talks about it, and so what we decided was, well, look, let's actually make this into a potentially FDA-approved medicine, and so let's conduct the clinical trials to prove that it actually does work, and it's not just based on on anecdote. Um, and so we're going to be collecting the data and and hopefully finding a solution for for folks that have these suicide headaches. And um, I think it's just that is what we need to look at. We got to look at the outcomes because if you can solve problems uh, for, for patients that aren't being solved, you, you're going to have an ultimately big business and nobody's going to care about what substance your medicine's based off of as long as you're solving the problem uh, and presenting the data in a legal manner. And so everything we do is in a federally legal manner. You know, Kevin, um, I think he's pretty gung-ho about mind med and psychedelics. He wasn't so much when, when we first started talking about mind med. He, he actually turned me down on my, on my first pitch and said, get lost. You know, my name is not, not Timothy Leary. It's Kevin O'Leary. And, uh, you know, you need to, you know, I, I, I'd never invested in cannabis. So I, you know, why should I invest in psychedelics? And what we proved to him was, look, everything we do um, is federally regulated and, um, this is all going to happen through the FDA pathway, and that's I think a key difference with with some of the some of the other psychedelic uh, sorry some of the other cannabis companies that are out there that um, might not not everything is is federally legal. Now um, you you mentioned the United States and our FDA and its medicines or something like that in the EU. I forget EMA, what, yeah. what, yeah. what theirs European, is called, but yeah. obviously you'd go after that market as well, right? Sure. I mean, just because yeah. you're based in Basel, Switzerland. Um, doesn't mean that you guys wouldn't be making this uh, available anywhere where uh, an agency would approve it. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, typically you, you look at both of those markets when you're developing a drug. Um, the U.S. drug market is, is always a bigger market. And so it's sought after by, by um, pharmaceutical comp companies like ours. But yeah, we'd be looking at both uh, the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, these are global problems, right? They, they need global solutions. Now, uh, JR, when you're uh, sitting with a guy like Kevin, that's one <laughs> thing. And when you're sitting as the CEO with, uh, you know, somebody from uh, a larger fund, uh, mm -hmm. not that Kevin isn't large, he is, but, uh, you know, if it was a fund or some, somebody that said, well, you know, under ESG, we're not sure if we can. And then you, of course, are pointing out, look, we're not recreational. You know, this isn't like going out mm -hmm. and, you know, I have nothing against tequila or vodka or any of that stuff. But, yeah. um, you know, if somebody wanted to say it from an ESG standpoint, well, you know, cigarettes, tobacco, liquor, you know, some of these things, guns, I don't want to be investing in those areas. Sure. I get it. But how about when you're talking to some of the large investors that you must occasionally speak to about, um, you know, psychedelics. Do you get a lot of pushback or as soon as they hear the medical application side of it, they do like Kevin did and they soften up a little bit and they, 
start to embrace the idea? Well, there's always that sort of initial stigma, you know, put the blinders on. I don't want to hear about this for like the first minute or two. And then you go, sure. wait a minute, let's, let's talk about numbers. 40 million Americans, that's a huge market. And this is all federally legal. Um, and suddenly they become much more interested in the stigma from the 1960s sort of just evaporates in the air. Um, with, with Kevin, it, it, took, it took another phone call, but um, he, uh, it, there are some pretty large institutions that have invested into MindMed um, before we went public and, and, and our existing shareholders now. Um, you know, I can say that some large uh, academic institutions are, are shareholders by default of the funds that you know have invested in this company and so um, we thought that was going to be an issue right that was sort of the initial reason we listed in Canada first um, but what I realized shortly thereafter was you know this this is going to be a whole brand new big space, it's a new asset class, and institutional investors want to get involved, get in on that action. Um, you know, this is, some very large companies are going to be made. Um, and we are the only publicly listed psychedelic pharmaceutical company out there in later stage development. There's really kind of three leaders in the space. There's ourselves, um, a company that is, uh, is, is backed by, there are two companies, two other companies that are backed by Peter Thiel. Um, called a tie and uh, also um, compass pathways and th those are two private companies um, but we're all taking this FDA approach and uh, you know I think I think we're going to continually continue to to attract institutional capital um, because of that approach and so you know on a, one of our I was a, did a update call um, to our shareholders last week just sort of keeping them apprised of, of what we're working on. And one of them asked me, you know, will you ever buy a, a recreational psychedelics company and sort of, you know, have two arms to, to the company? And, you know, I, I think that'd be really tough. Um, I, I don't think I could go in front of the FDA um, and the DEA and, and all the sort of agencies that we have to work with um, without staying in our medical approach. And um, I think that is the long-term strategy that is ultimately going to win in the, in the psychedelic-inspired medicine space. All right. I'm sure some of the, again, investor types that are watching are going to want to know, okay, what kind of scale can I get out of this? In other words, can you scale like uh, some of these biotechs? Can you scale mm -hmm. like even some of the, obviously our focus this year, JR, unfortunately, mm -hmm. has been COVID. And... Yeah. Uh, who exactly can scale with tests, who can scale with a vaccine, potentially, if it's approved, who can scale with testing, you know, whether it's a 15-minute test or, you know, whether it's a nasal swab, whatever it is. So can you guys, um, in the space that you're in, scale like a biotech? Yeah, I think we are. I think we can and, and, and we will. Um, you know, one of the things to, to keep in mind is that, yeah, there is a virus, you know, there's a virus out there. Um, it's terrible. It's killing people. Um, you know, we're going to have to continue to test for it. We don't know when the vaccine is going to come through. That hopefully is soon. But mm -hmm. um, what I think is going to be the single biggest impact, like right now we're looking at the acute issues that have to do with COVID, people dying in hospitals, um, you know, 
not enough respirators. Uh, you know, that's a problem. And, and if you turn on the news, it looks like an even bigger problem. Um, but uh, what is ultimately going to have the single biggest impact on our society is that we've been in isolation for the last four or five months, right? Addiction and mental health skyrocket out of control when you're isolated. If you, there's, there's plenty of models on this. I mean, just there's some one animal model called the rat park models where um, they took two sets of rats. They put one set totally in isolation by themselves and they put another and sort of those able to interact in sort of like this little mini city. And they tested um, how much addictive substances each group had. The ones that were in isolation were 19 times the amount of consumption of addictive substances. Okay, so that rat park model is happening at a global scale right now. And so mental health and addiction markets are going to scale and companies like ours that have innovative approaches and companies you know that are really trying to solve these problems are going to have to scale with that problem and so uh it's this is not like an orphan drug market where you have like you know 20,000 50,000 100,000 people where you might charge a lot for that medicine um for a small finite amount of people there's 40 million americans with with, with anxiety there's you know 20 plus million with addiction Big markets. Yep. We have to figure out a way to scale with those markets. I don't think um, that that is scaling is the issue here. I think it's actually addressing the whole market. Can you address the whole market? So, okay. Um, how about doctors and insurance companies? Um, Great question. You and I both know that yeah. you know for you to get that prescription, since you're talking more or less about therapies, mm. um, you're talking about you know doctors embracing this and saying, mm -hmm. wow, I am seeing, I, I read the papers on what JR and his firm have done. Um, I, I'm a believer and now I'm starting to prescribe it. Are you uh, getting a lot of pushback? Just like I asked you about investors. Um, are you getting pushback from doctors about that and or the insurance companies, if you wouldn't mind hitting those two questions? Well, I think, I think you and Kevin would probably call it, uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin O'Leary would probably call it the power of the purse, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to pay for this stuff? And, you know, it's not necessarily always the patients that make those decisions. That's a little messed up in its own right. But um, yeah, the insurers are going to have to get on board. And the only way that insurers get on board is if you present them the data and you have an FDA approval to show, hey, this is a medicine. Here's the data. This actually helps cure anxiety or treat anxiety and you know and ha has a much better effect than this medicine and so that's what we have to do um, we're in that data gathering phase right now to to make this presentable to governments and also societies and also insurers or the payers um, and i think insurance companies would much rather find solutions that actually solve problems than putting people on a pill a day for the rest of their lives that they have to pay for every single day. And so I think our model um, is gonna be very much in demand. And because of that, uh, because of the value we're providing to society, I think we'll be rewarded in a financial manner as well. We'll have to find the right model with those payers as we get closer to commercialization. 
Um, but it is, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., it's, it's something that every pharmaceutical company has to deal with. How do you best price your, your, your drug that you're putting on the market? Fortunately, these are very big markets, so um, it's, you don't necessarily have to price it like you would in an orphan drug, which sometimes gets some of those companies into some trouble. Right. Well, um, as far as uh, burn rate, um, I'm sure something that you're terribly familiar with because yeah. any of the biotech companies, I'm not saying you're biotech, but any of the biotech pharmaceutical companies always have to deal with that because all of the meetings that guys like JR have to do, folks, all of the uh, um, papers that have to be submitted, all of the data that's gotta be, you know, triple checked and, you know, every I has to be dotted, T's crossed, all of that stuff. Um, that doesn't even go into the scientific side of it. Now I applaud you guys for getting into the, you know, working with that uh, university in Basel, mm -hmm. because that's gonna be huge, obviously. Yeah. For sure. Um, but, you know, uh, as far as burn rate, uh, you guys have enough cash to get this thing to market? Yeah, we just, um, we've raised a total of about uh, $40 million since inception. Um, we, uh, you know, are, are, are very well budgeted for, for around the next uh, year to 18 months. And, uh, you know, I think, um, yes, do biotech companies burn money? Yep. But also they have potential binary outcomes for, you know, if, if a drug does get approved, you have very, very high uh, upside um, if that works out. Um, what we're going to be looking at is how do we build the largest uh, portfolio and pipeline in the psychedelic space? And can we partner some of those programs off with larger pharmaceutical companies who have large balance sheets um, that are going to help get some of these uh, projects of the line. And I think that's a prudent way to do this. And um, it sort of sets you up to, you know, to have a potential acquisition of your company down the line, but also, you know, that you'll, you'll have the balance sheet to go to market. Um, and so my co-founder, um, Steve Hurst has been in the pharma space for 40 years. He's structured a lot of these type of transactions to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in R and D reimbursements that come into a company. And so, there is the potential that we can strike those type of deals at MindMed and um, not necessarily just have to constantly go back to the market and raise money um, like some folks do. Uh, we actually want to have a more sustainable approach to, to the development and R&D that we're doing. So last question then, if I could, JR, uh, how do you see MindMed um, evolving over the next one and two years? I mean, uh, you know, when I when I looked at it, when I read all the, the data that I could find on you guys, it seemed like you'd made a lot of great partnerships already, um, that uh, uh, you've got real uh, institutions that are experimenting, I'll call it experimenting, testing, whatever, like Johns Hopkins, um, with psychedelics to see what sort of results that they're getting. The more of that that obviously can come your way, the better. Sure. But how do you see MindMed uh, uh, progressing over this next year and two years? Well, we're just going to focus on the clinical trials and collecting the data uh, and advancing those trials farther and farther along the value chain and hopefully closer to an approval uh, of those medicines. And um, so I think within one to two years, we should have, you know, be in a 
late, later stage phase two trials should be well underway or, or finding some great data out. Uh, and ideally, um, you know, if we're talking sort of the one to two year horizon, we sh hopefully should have a phase three trial going on at, at some point in, in one of our programs. And that is when, you know, sort of later stage phase two, early stage phase three, that's when you get those partnerships for pharma coming in and you know, providing even more capital to your company. Um, I think because we're the first publicly listed psychedelics company, um, we have the vast potential to also um, roll up a lot of the space and be the single biggest uh, psychedelics company out there uh, if we play our cards right. And I think that's important. Early mover advantage is huge, uh, especially in, in, a, in a fast growing, fast paced space like this. Um, so Kevin, you know, we do a, we do a, a sort of call every two weeks and Kevin O'Leary says to me, he's like, you got to focus and, and look at how do you build the largest company um, that has the biggest pipeline because that is what other companies are going to be interested in. And so that's our, that's our goal. JR, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Folks, I've been speaking with J.R. Ron, CEO of MindMed, and again, M-M-E-D and M-M-E-D-F are the symbols, either for the over-the-counter or on the Neo Exchange um, up in Canada. J.R., thank you, sir. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.